Today's episode is sponsored by TrueLearn. TrueLearn has smart banks of practice questions for a wide variety of high-stakes examinations. Are you a med student? They have smart banks for step one and two. Are you a resident in the field of internal medicine, emergency medicine, or anesthesiology? They have you covered with smart banks for the exams you will encounter along your journey. But this is not only for physicians. PAs and MPs can prepare for their exams using TrueLearn as well. They can even help nurses prepare for the NCLEX. Click the link in the show notes for a discount by using the code EDDIEJOMP. D25. Crush your upcoming exams by using TrueLearn. Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. Today is the 25th of September of 2022 for historical context. The paper that I'm going to be discussing is regarding the management of fluids in patients who have acute pancreatitis, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on the 15th of September of this year. The paper is titled Aggressive or Moderate Fluid Resuscitation and acute pancreatitis. Hat tip definitely to all the authors. I always recommend that you read the article for yourself, but unfortunately, this particular article is hidden behind the paywall and there are limitations that come with that. Some people just can't get access to it. But sometimes within your hospitals, they could open up the papers of sorts so that you could get them. But this is one of those that I'm glad that this article was published and the findings are reflective of the way that I practice my management of patients with acute pancreatitis. You see, the historical thinking of acute pancreatitis is to go ahead and bombard these patients with IV fluids as many people say that these patients are dry. Now, when you go ahead and read the introduction to this article, they state that moderately severe or severe disease develops in quote, approximately 35% of patients with acute pancreatitis. The data has been all over the place and studies have been small and conflicting when it comes to giving fluids to patients with acute pancreatitis. Clinical Gestalt has stated to just go ahead and give fluids and worry about the consequences later. But we have all learned more about the consequences and challenges of patients with fluid overload over the past several years. And this is why, and thankfully, these authors decided to tackle the experiment of assessing how much fluid resuscitation would be beneficial to patients with acute pancreatitis. I'm going to go ahead and dig a little deeper into the study than I normally do, simply because I find it quite important to, I guess, go over these data. But in addition to that, you can't get your hands on this paper unless you have access to a New England Journal of Medicine. But I really like to keep my recommendation that you should read this article for yourself as it is not medical advice and you should not trust me. So this trial took place in four different countries, India, Italy, Mexico, and Spain. It's a multi-center, open label. Open label means that the authors are able to know which group, as well as the patients for that matter, are able to know which group they sit in. Parallel group randomized controlled superiority trial. The way that they diagnosed acute pancreatitis included patients who presented with typical abdominal pain, had a serum lipase or amylase higher than three times the upper limit of normal, or acute pancreatitis on imaging, which usually on a CT scan includes stranding. For those people who are currently training, I definitely recommend you start looking at the CT abdomens of patients with acute pancreatitis so you kind of get a ballpark of what it's supposed to look like. Because if, for example, let's say you're in the emergency department, somebody comes with abdominal pain, but radiology is kind of backed up, you can learn how to read these images for yourself. It's important for me to mention how acute pancreatitis is defined because sometimes it's diagnosed with a lipase or amylase level that is slightly above reference range. And, you know, that's that's not 
how this is done. There was a one-to-one -one ratio between the patients who were in the aggressive fluid resuscitation group and the moderate resuscitation group. One of the limitations of the study is that both, quote, patients and investigators were aware of the assigned trial groups, end quote, hence this being open label. This is definitely a limitation because it introduces bias, but here I don't really think it was much of a problem. To define the two groups more specifically, let's start with the aggressive fluid resuscitation group. These patients received lactated ringers, which I'm going to call LR moving forward, at 20 cc's per kilogram of body weight over two hours. Then the patients received an infusion of 3 cc's per kilogram per hour of LR. To put this into perspective, because otherwise it's just mumbo jumbo, a patient who is 70 kilograms would receive 1.4 liters of fluid over the first two hours, and then they would receive a, a drip of LR at 210 cc's per hour. Again, this is in a patient who is 70 kilograms. If a patient weighs, say, 200 pounds, then we'd be looking at much higher numbers. Let's use 90 kilograms for the sake of simplicity to represent somebody who is 200 pounds so that the math isn't too complicated. This would mean that they would receive an infusion of 270 cc's per hour. That seems like quite a lot for me for any type of aggressive fluid resuscitation. To be frank, this is aggressive even for the most aggressive fluid resuscitators I've seen in acute pancreatitis. Thankfully, both groups had safety checkpoints where they would decrease or stop infusion if there was a concern for fluid overload. Amongst the other goodies presented in the fluid resuscitation protocol, they state that they had checkpoints that were performed at 3, 12, 24, 48, and 72 hours. Now, if the patient was either hypotensive or had decreased urine output, then the patient would receive additional fluid boluses of 20 cc's per kilogram. The other group was the moderate fluid resuscitation group, which was far more moderate. Upon presentation, they would receive an infusion of 1.5 cc's per kilogram per hour. They would only get a bolus of 10 cc's per kilogram if the patient was deemed to have hypovolemia. Doing the same math as I did for the aggressive fluid resuscitation group, that means that a 70 kilogram patient would receive an infusion of 105 cc's per hour of LR compared to 210 cc's per hour in, an, in a patient with a 70 kilogram weight. So similar to the aggressive resuscitation group, the moderate resuscitation group received additional boluses if they had decreased urine output or were hypotensive defined as a systolic blood pressure of less than 90. Same checkpoints for safety applied here as well. So now we have a kind of an idea of how much fluids these patients got in either group. But let's talk about nutrition. One of the more recent evolutions in our management of acute pancreatitis includes starting oral feeding earlier in the clinical course. Here they started feeding at 12 hours if the patient had reported pain of less than 5 on a 0 to 10 scale. Fluids were stopped if the patient was able to tolerate oral intake for 8 hours. From what I'm seeing, this could be 48 hours in the aggressive fluid resuscitation group and as early as 20 hours after randomization in the moderate resuscitation group. 
Next up, let's talk about primary outcomes and secondary outcomes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As a primary outcome, they were trying to see if there was a difference in the development of moderately severe or severe acute pancreatitis while the patient was hospitalized. It's important to define what moderately severe or severe acute pancreatitis actually means. And here, it would need to include at least one of the criteria of the revised Atlanta classification. These include local complications, exacerbation of pre-existing coexisting conditions, which I don't know what that means, a creatinine of less than, of at least, excuse me, 1.9, hypotension with a systolic of less than 90 despite fluid resuscitation, and a PF ratio of less than 300, which means that these patients are kind of getting drowned out. They had a number of secondary outcomes, which I will get into later. They were able to recruit 122 patients in the aggressive resuscitation group and 127 into the moderate fluid resuscitation group. When looking at the baseline characteristics, it's always important to think about what preconceived notions exist with regards to the patient population being studied. What caught my eye here was that approximately 50% of the patients recruited were female. I must say that in my practice, the vast majority of cases of acute pancreatitis takes place in males. In addition, the majority of causes of pancreatitis were secondary to gallstones. You and I have probably seen more commonly cases of pancreatitis secondary, secondary to alcoholism or hypertriglyceridemia, more so than gallstone pancreatitis. I ran a search in the article to see if there's a reason why gallstone pancreatitis was more common than alcohol-related pancreatitis in this patient population, but quite frankly, I was unable to find an answer. There wasn't much else in the baseline characteristics of the patients that caught my eye. So next up, let's get into the results. This is what we're here for. But before we do, I have to go ahead and say that this patient, this patient, huh, that this study was stopped early. This is what happens when I just improvise my uh, podcast. But when you look at the cumulative fluids received in the first 48 hours, the authors reported that, that the aggressive resuscitation group received a mean of 7.8 liters and the moderate resuscitation group received 5.5 liters of fluid. Right there, there's a difference of over 2 liters already. Given that we usually give fluids earlier in the course of resuscitation, the authors noted that, quote, the greatest between group difference in volume administration occurred during the first 12 hours, end quote. Now, when it comes to the primary outcome, which it's defined as moderately or severe pancreatitis, it was found that 22.1% of patients in the aggressive fluid resuscitation group met this endpoint versus 17.3% in the moderate fluid resuscitation group. To the untrained eye, 22.1 seems like far more than 17.3. But it turns out that this was not statistically significant, and it also had a confidence interval that crossed the number one, hence making it not statistically significant. This was both on the relative risk scale as well as on the adjusted relative risk scale. So you might say, okay, so this wasn't statistically significant, but you have to take into account 
that this that this study was underpowered because they terminated it early because of safety concerns. But I'll get into that a little bit more further. But I always tell patients, patients, here we go again. I always tell people to not read the conclusions as the first takeaway to any journal article. Here's a great example on why you shouldn't do that. If you were to just read the conclusions, you would notice that they do not mention the primary outcome. Instead, they mention the incidence of fluid overload. Fluid overload is not the primary outcome. It's a safety outcome, but it is a very important safety outcome. After all, we do not want to drown our patients. In fact, if you look at all the primary and secondary outcomes listed on Table 2, which includes severe pancreatitis, local complications, incidence of invasive treatment, ICU admission, shock, respiratory failure, etc., you will see that there's pretty much no difference in any of these primary and secondary outcomes. You will also notice a very wide confidence interval. But we have to keep in mind that this patient, that this patient, I got it, can't get over that, that this study was underpowered because it was stopped early because of safety concerns, which I deem to be very, very appropriate. So since I've talked about these safety outcomes, this is where the meat and potatoes live in this paper. Here, the incidence of fluid overload in the aggressive fluid resuscitation group was 20.5% versus 6.3% in the moderate fluid resuscitation group. I often recommend that when you get these percentages, you plug them into a number needed to treat calculator. And once we go ahead and do that, we would see that the number needed to treat to cause fluid overload is just seven. Interpret that number as you may. But I do also have to say that the confidence interval for this finding is much wider than I would like. In addition, there were more findings of the fluid overload, of fluid overload, including uh, peripheral edema, pulmonary rails in the in the aggressive fluid resuscitation group. This honestly should not become should not come as a surprise. These patients were bombarded with fluids, but they had things that were not statistically significant, but potentially due to the fact that they were underpowered, including the incidence of moderate and severe fluid overload and dyspnea due to fluid overload. Given that the authors noted that they were causing harm to the patients, as I mentioned before, this trial was terminated early, and I'm glad that they did. Perhaps they should have completed the target enrollment. They would have found differences in the primary outcome as well as the secondary outcome with a tighter confidence interval. But again, they were causing harm, so I'm glad that they didn't pursue this. The discussion starts off by saying that, quote, this trial showed that aggressive fluid resuscitation include increased the risk of fluid overload, end quote. I'm really glad that the authors took on the endeavor of proving this. The rationale of, of recommending aggressive resuscitation in acute pancreatitis, which is in the current management guidelines, is now debunked. We do not need to bombard our patients with fluids. Perhaps using a protocol similar to the ones used in the moderate resuscitation group seems appropriate for the management of the vast majority of our patients with acute pancreatitis. Now, that being said, every patient is different, so therefore, this is not medical advice. We should always use our best clinical judgment when caring for this and any other patients. I hope you like this longer format of a breakdown of an article. Let me know your thoughts. I always try to recommend to read the article for yourself, but as I mentioned before, there's some limitations to doing so with this particular article. And let me know if you would like for me to continue doing deep dives into articles such as this one. Thank you all for your support. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Thanks for leaving me a five-star review on whatever medium you listen to podcasts on as it helps us get to a wider audience. Have a great day, guys. Bye.